Before I start, I want to tell you about a podcast I think you'd like called Versify. Versify is a show where people tell stories and then hear their words turned into poetry. You'll hear poets form connections with storytellers as they gain insights into their lives, then weave these insights into works of art and offer them back as gifts, not only to the participants, but also to you, the listener. Versify is a collaboration between Nashville Public Radio, PRX, and The Porch, a nonprofit literary center. Its new season is out now, and you can find it at podcast.wpln.org, or subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Welcome to WMFA, a podcast where writers talk writing. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm talking with Lainey Zumas. Lainey's latest novel, Red Clocks, was a New York Times editor's choice, an Indie Next selection, and a publisher's weekly top 10 literary fiction pick. Lainey is also the author of the story collection Farewell Navigator and the novel The Listeners, which was a finalist for the Oregon Book Award. She's an associate professor in the MFA program in creative writing at Portland State University. Red Clocks is a fascinating and acutely observed novel that depicts a misogynist dystopian America where abortion is once again illegal, in vitro fertilization is banned, the personhood amendment grants the rights of life, liberty, and property to every embryo, and a pink wall prevents American women from seeking reproductive health care in Canada. In a small Oregon fishing town, four different women navigate this landscape and the challenges it places on womanhood, motherhood, identity, and freedom. I love talking with Lainey. We cover a lot of ground in this conversation. We talk about the real-life issues surrounding her novel and how her characters might have voted. We talk about what it's like when your work of fiction is dangerously close to reality and you're drawing comparisons to Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. We talk about presenting women characters and presenting yourself as a woman writer. And we talk about the hard work of developing your style and the projects you have to let go of before it arrives. We have to to be illegible for a while, right? Even maybe to ourselves. And I, I think what really helps me um, is reading things that are older or or that are in translation that do have they're they're so tilted or skewed or, or kind of at, at a at an odd angle. And I can get into the world of that book and say, okay, like this is really the a world that was made and shaped by this writer. And this writer was not trying to explain something in a way that I would already understand. Like this writer is inviting me into the strangeness of her space to, to kind of learn it, you know, to be immersed in it. I I think that kind of work does come from being willing just to, to, to kind of be alone with yourself and, and your sentences. I was so excited to read this book and it's so wonderful and so congratulations on that although you. you know excite I'm sure you've had this conversation with people where it's that kind of like it's not the sort of book that you want to say you enjoyed even though you yeah. enjoy it but it just feels like oh god you know this is such a moment where it feels so real and I'm sure you know I know that a lot of this has been going on for a really long time but I, I wanted to open up by just talking to you about how your approach to this project changed as the years went on and we kind of found ourselves in this in this political situation now that's become even more hostile to women. Yeah. No, it's um I I have a lot of ambivalence um about um the the sort of t- timeliness for lack of a better word sure. of book. Um I I think I can imagine uh, you know various writers at other times when maybe there was a big space launch coming up and they had happened to write a book about space, that would be a sort of happy timeliness. Um, but this, uh, 
I, I feel so scared and angry all the time about um, Trump and uh, not not just Trump, obviously, but the the sort of cabal of evil that um, surrounds him. And uh, what was I, I think the point at which um, I had a kind of my lowest point when it came to thinking about the relationship between red clocks and contemporary the contemporary political situation is. Uh, when Mike Pence was chosen as the running mate, mm. uh, because uh, one of the kinds of research I was doing um, in from 2010 on when I started the project uh, was into uh, legislators who supported personhood amendments and, and bills and uh, legislation and um, granting all these rights to a, a zygote, a single-celled zygote at the moment of conception. And, and Mike Pence um, has been a longtime enemy of choice and as well as, um, LGBTQ rights. Um, and he just seemed obsessed and maybe still is with, um, fig- you know, telling women what they're supposed to do with themselves. And, you know, he, when he was governor of Indiana, he wanted to force women, any woman who'd had a miscarriage or an abortion to have a funeral, oh, uh, right. yeah. burial or cremation for the, the, the fetal material. And, um, and he, so he was this kind of scary figure for me, um, long before he was selected to be (laughs) the running mate. And, um, so was Paul Ryan. Um, and I, I think, uh, what's been interesting is to, watch, uh, cause as you said, I mean, so many of these issues have been with us f- for a long time and for decades, uh, women and, um, male allies have been uh, kind of working against misogyny in, in all sorts of ways, uh, that I'm really grateful for. Um, but now you, you have a, a bunch of different vectors of, of those fights kind of coming to the surface together. And, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know if uh, I haven't, read the the paper in the last couple of days, but this tax bill, right, that um, was passed through the House and Senate and that Trump signed, I think, right before Christmas, there was a lot of language in there about uh, giving uh, college savings plans to, uh, you know, uh, an embryo at the mm. moment of conception. And um, the ways that, that are different kinds of um, legislative processes work together to, to kind of slip things like that in are so scary. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so I don't have a good answer for you other than just, um, it's strange. I I did a pretty significant, um, revision pass on red clocks. I had this amazing editor named Lee Boudreau. And while we were working on not just, uh, kind of sentence level revisions, but macro level, you know, character, uh, trajectories and uh, putting pressure on on certain parts of the plot. Um, that's when Trump was elected, and and all this you know shit started bubbling to the surface. So yeah, it's been a strange. The book has had a strange life that way. Yeah, I I was really struck by. I mean, and there's just this one sentence, and I can't. I think it might be a row chapter, and it's it's just it's very simple declarative sentence about waking up to a president she hadn't voted for, and I was like, that feels like a you know like that found its way in yes. later on. Yeah, that did. Um, and you know, because I was imagining, you know, it was important to me, or it was an aim of mine to keep. Uh, the politicians themselves offstage in the yeah. book. Um, 
and, you know, one of my reasons for that was to try to inscribe the experience of an average citizen who doesn't feel much connection to uh, political power, um, doesn't feels kind of resigned or apathetic or uh, disconnected from the way uh, federal and state decisions are made. Uh, and, you know, within that sentence, I was hoping to include the possibility that she hadn't voted for anyone mm-hmm, at all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the way I imagine Roe, the biographer, I think she probably would have voted <laughs> in a presidential election, but um, there's so many of us who don't vote. I mean, uh, and how does that play into, into the whole thing? But that, yes, that a sentence was added after Donald Trump was elected. Yeah, that's interesting about Roe. That makes me think of the, um, not to give away too many plot points for folks who haven't read it yet, but uh, later on she sort of finds herself in a in a place that provides abortions and, and is a sort of help center for women in all sorts of different ways. And she sort of is confronted with all the ways in which activism is happening around yeah. her that she just has been unaware of. And so, yeah, I, I, I guess I could see her also maybe being the sort of person who doesn't vote in local elections, but would vote in a president, right. you know, not totally disconnected, but, but pretty, pretty happy to just float along. Yeah. And it's, it becomes a, um, a, a technical challenge, I think in the, in the fiction itself of how do you render characters who are starting to wake up or come to consciousness of something, but still have, only a vague idea, um, as, as maybe I, you know, the, the author only has a, I only have a vague idea of, uh, how some of these things work, but it's that sense of starting to kind of scrape your nails against the need for action and, uh, change and, um, both individually and collectively. Um, it's a, just at the level of craft, I think that, uh, was, difficult for me. Um, sure. Cause you can, it can get so clunky with just the sort of like, and then she realized, you yes. know, like these sorts of constructions. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think close third, um, gives a lot of space for that. There, there is this kind of authorial steering and maybe knowing more than the character knows, but at the same time, it's not this triumphantly omniscient, um, God's eye view narration that can explain to the reader every little dynamic or development in the character's thinking. It's, it's more of a, um, maybe knowing slightly more than the character, but also not knowing everything and having to sort of watch for clues and, um, watch that murky process of, yeah, she's in a, in this, uh, place, this, that kind of underground healthcare, um, pro- clinic and, and looking at, posters on the walls for actions that are coming up and, and realizing that these things are happening. I would love to hear you also talk about, um, I think it's a really interesting choice that you've made that, you know, it's not that the characters are nameless. We learn their names through other characters, but the chapters are all named, you know, by that, that female character's perspective and by their, um, I don't know, I guess, signifiers i'm not sure quite what the category noun would be but you know there's the mender the biographer the wife and and so they're in a sense being presented in that narrow like okay well we this is how we see women you know through their roles in society but and then their names are sort of almost 
uh, the possessions of other people, you know, who get to say them. And I just wondered what, what led you to that? Yeah. Um, I, when I was drafting the book, um, I, I'd been really struck when I read several years ago, this amazing novel by the the German writer, Jenny Erpenbeck called Visitation. Um, do you know that book? I don't. I, I love, I love Erpenbeck and I, and that's probably my favorite book of hers. It's, um, it's a novel about a lake outside Berlin and it narrates about a hundred years in the life of the lake and people who live around it and the houses that are occupied there and, um, what, what world war one and two change about the people who live there or who no longer live there. And she chose, uh, to name her chapters according to the character whose point of view it was. And there was a gardener, there was an architect, there was a, um, you know, various other kind of roles uh, of people and characters who live there. And that stayed with me because there was such a distancing there and, and such a, a kind of static um, othering quality to that titling, that labeling, um, that was interesting because it, it's almost the in, inverse of, of naming. Like we feel like, oh, my name is belongs to me. It's this special individual kind of expression of self, even if we have a, a common first name for instance. Um, whereas saying someone's a teacher or a healer or a wife or a mother, that takes away that, that lens of individuality and, and self. And, um, so because Erpen Beck's use of that tactic stayed with me, um, so long, I wanted to see what, what would happen if I applied it to these women, particularly since, um, all of the labels except for the polar explorer are about relational, uh, identities, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You're, you're mending someone, you're writing the biography of someone, you're someone's wife or someone's daughter. And I, I think that is for, for anyone alive, right. But, but for women in, um, I think a particular set of ways that can be constricting, we, we do come to know ourselves, um, or, or sometimes value ourselves based on what we do for other people. Um, whereas this 19th century fictional polar explorer was really just interested in taking some temperatures of ice in the Arctic circle. And, um, you know, she was it, in a more distance way doing things for other people, but her identity um, was not based on relationality. Um, yeah. How did she, how did she show up here and, and, you know, she's kind of the the only outlier. historical. Yeah. yeah, she's she's a little bit of an outlier for sure. Um, she um, kind of came in simply because I love reading and thinking about um, polar climbs and exploration and uh, the the sort of experience of that drastic peril um and and also how much of a, a kind of um male and an imperialistic space uh the the polar regions got framed as right mm -hmm. this the sort of last frontier that that hasn't been staked out and claimed by quote-unquote civilization and um and it was such a a male space and and it got me thinking i'm also kind of interested in female stowaways on mm. On ships and 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 female uh, sort of women who had to dress as men or 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 
appear as men in order to do the things they wanted to do. And so, um, I just was kind of researching for my own personal pleasure, um, female, um, polar scientists and, and explorers mostly in the 20th century. And that led me to, to make up this woman who came from the Faroe Islands, which, which is a place I'm also just kind of, kind of randomly interested in. Um, and especially it's cuisine. Uh, and, uh, so I just figured that's the, the person who Roe is, is writing a biography of. And, um, and this is some, I don't, I wish maybe there is a word for it and I just don't know it yet. Um, but there's a, a thing that, that I think all writers do, no matter what kinds of projects we're working on, where we simply love something or are curious about it or feel drawn to it. And so we figure out a way for it to work in the larger project mm-hmm. rather than that sense of, well, here are my themes or here's my intention or here's my, um, kind of overarching project. And all of these things are going to fit neatly into that. It's, it's, having to reverse engineer certain things in order for a polar explorer to be able to inhabit the book. Right. What do you think, uh, what do you think drew Roe to her? Oh, that's, that's a, I love that question. Um, I envision Roe as a, a character who um, is very interested in solitude and um, in the difficulty that a lot of people have um, in seeing another person who chooses to live alone or simply does live alone based on whatever circumstance, um, and who, um, whose life has a, a, a sort of different script that isn't dependent on, um, as so many scripts for female characters were in the 19th century, um, on ending in marriage or death. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, although, well, <laughs> I'm going to set that aside and sure. not give away one of the plot points. But um, uh, I think that she is really interested in this woman who um, was just really, really loved ice and and wanted to go elsewhere, um, leave the place that she came from and uh, didn't go on this journey um, along the coast of Greenland because she was following a man or because she uh, had been forced into it. She, she was going because that was, was, giving her pleasure and, and, and meaning in her life. And Roe gets a lot of pushback, however gentle, um, from other people in her life saying, well, you know, you'd probably be happier if you were in a relationship or your life would be more stable. Or, um, you know, she has a therapist who tells her, you know, you're in denial of your need of, of being in a relationship. And, um, you know, I am myself, am just so endlessly interested in, um, the fact that there's so many ways to live, um, in relation to other people, um, and in different proximities. And yet, um, a lot of us are given a pretty narrow range of configurations that are supposed to make us happy. Um, and so much suffering comes from, you know, people saying, Oh, well, I feel like I want to live in this way, but my family has told me, or my church has told me, or, you know, my social, kind of fabric has told me that I should be living this other way. And whether that comes from, you know, not wanting to be in a relationship or being queer, um, or being transgender, like all, there's so many of us who are kind of at odds with the scripts that we've inherited. And, 
I think that's where Rose sort of connection to the polar explorer comes. I think she admires her and also wants to resurrect her in a way because she hasn't been written about. She's sort of been written not entirely out of history, but way into the margins of history. Right. Right. Yeah. That's, it's really, um, this is a really tiny anecdote, but it, it occurred to me while you were describing that idea of the scripts and, and how women are supposed to conform to them that, um, I had this with my hairdresser who I, who I love, <laughs> but like, you know, a few months ago, like she had been on me to like, kind of like, she really wanted to color my hair. And she was like, you know, we could just like, it would, and it would also, you know, cover up these little grays. And I was like, you know, the grays don't actually really bother me. And she goes, oh no, 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 of course not. And it was just this like, okay. But I mean, they do, right? Because they have to. They they do, right? Oh, yes. And and how many of those little micro moments do many of us encounter, you know, in a day or a week or a year? Like, oh, wait, but shouldn't you be wanting this other thing? Right. Oh, okay. You don't. Okay. That's fine. You know, but it's, it's even the question, right? Mm-hmm. How did you feel in sort of wanting proclaiming your okayness with the grays I felt I felt fine with it I mean I was just kind of like it it didn't actually bother me I think if I were like on the fence like where and there are definitely you know aspects of my physical appearance that this would have been a different conversation but like for whatever reason the gray hair just like literally doesn't bother me so I was not thinking like I I I think if I were in a in a situation where like I'm already more suggestible toward that sort of, uh, pre, you know, what you're, what you're supposed to, um, want or not want about, about the way that you look. I think I maybe would have, uh, would have weakened a little bit and maybe would have gone down the path of least resistance. But, uh, yeah, this was just something I was able to be like, okay, that's, you know, that's fine. Yeah. No, I think that, I mean, yeah. And, you said it was a tiny example, but I think that kind of thing matters a lot, you know, and um, especially the the sort of weariness that, that we can have if, if we're kind of, con- you know, it's like the, if not death, then weariness from a thousand right. Totally. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a book that I read um, last fall that, that I, I really, really admire, uh, um, by the the British uh, scholar Sarah Ahmed called Living a Feminist Life, um, and she she has a, a great blog called Feminist Killjoys, and she <laughs> talks that. a lot. <laughs> yeah, and she writes a lot about paths and, and walking paths or roads or, or routes um, that uh, are the the sort of paths of least resistance and and how tempting it is, just because we have limited energy or resources or whatever to kind of say okay screw it. I'm going to go down that path, even though it's not the one that really fits me. And, um, and just the extra energy it takes, um, to say, no, I'm going to walk over here where there's all these like weeds and rocks and no one's been here before. Absolutely. And even just, you know, as, as women, and then that additional layer as writers, I don't know, I would be interested to hear your experience with this, but I just earlier today spoke with Kar- uh, Karan Mahajan, uh, who wrote Association of Small Bombs, and we were talking about how b- being a writer is such a hard thing to explain to your family, like to our families at least. Like it was very much like something that that nobody really understands what you do or like what the output of it is or like what, what your day looks like. Um, yeah. 
and how you fit into the sort of capitalist order. Oh my right? God. Yeah. Like what, what is your product and like, what's, what's your brand? Yeah. 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 So do you have a, an elevator pitch to your family that you use? To- you know, I don't really, um, because I'm a little, I, I think, so I'm, I'm working on my first novel right now and I've been working on it for about maybe close to two years at this point. And I, I there's still only like very limited company that I feel comfortable actually explaining like a, a tiny, tiny version of the plot of it too. Um, most of the time I kind of ramble on about my interest in Appalachia and, um, you know, identity and place is sort of my shorthand. Like I'm interested in place and identity and that kind of either confuses people or ask them, you know, they either shut up or ask more questions that I'm like maybe <laughs> comfortable answering. Um, but what I was saying to him too, is that it was really funny to me when I started the podcast to see how like some folks who, and I mean, my family and friends, like everybody's super supportive and, and very sweet, but you know, the podcast for some reason was much easier for people to understand as a product. Oh, interesting. Um, and yeah. so there would be this like, oh, cool, you're and she she's doing this podcast. And I was like, oh yeah, but I mean I've been I've been doing a lot of stuff, you know. <laughs> been working for a while. I don't know. Do you do you have that sort of thing with your family too? Um I am really fortunate in that my mother is a fiction writer. Mm. Uh, and her name's Kate Blackwell and um when I was younger, um, you know, she had been a journalist and um, she had worked for Ralph Nader, actually, or, or with him writing books and speeches. And um, and then she stopped writing when she had three kids. Um, and I guess I was in maybe junior high or, or high school when she started writing again actively and starting to send out stories and, and stuff. So I kind of had a, a great role model, not just because she was a writer, but because she was definitely not in it for the fame, fortune, and glory. Mm-hmm. Um, she was sort of taking scraps of 20 minutes, 30 minutes here to, you know, work on something and send it out. And she got a lot of rejections and, um, as well as, you know, finding homes for some of her work. And, um, so she gave me a model of, um, the, the sort of habits and practices coming first and the, the sort of dedication to the writing before, or maybe you know, entirely without the, uh, external affirmation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was really lucky to have that. I mean, I, I think one of the things I talk to my students about sometimes is, um, that it's, it's really understandable. And, um, I has, I'm not going to say normal or natural because I have pretty much tried to stop using either of those words altogether. Sure. <laughs> Um, however, it's really understandable, um, for young emerging or, or emerging writers to say, oh my gosh, I want to get published. I want to make connections. I want to get my name out there. And how do I do that? And it can be, that desire can, can make a, a really, uh, antagonistic bedfellow. I know that's a terrible phrase, but, um, just, it's a bad match with making the work. Because, you know, you're, you're thinking, okay, how can I write something that will be trendy or appeal to this kind of audience? And then as soon as you start thinking that, like, just the work is really suffers. Yeah, Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, I I think, I mean, I definitely um, had a lot of my life before the internet was was a widespread thing. And um, I think just one of the benefits of that, I mean, I'm, I know there are downsides too, but one of the benefits is there wasn't this kind of immediately accessible stage that you could, you know, click into and see everyone performing and, 
um, getting accolades and stuff, you know, that things took a little more time to, to reach you. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's just so interesting that you'll tell people about the podcast and that's the thing that they are able to latch onto, you know, that's the recognizable product. Yeah. I think, yeah, it, it is funny. And I think, you know, like, I don't come from it. My dad is a big reader, but otherwise I don't come from a big reading background. And so I think like listening to something, it's like, oh, listening to the radio, I I can wrap my, you know, not wrap my brain around it. Like they don't understand reading. They just happen to not be readers, you know? So, so I think it's just kind of more in keeping with their, uh, with their reference points. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you, you knew you wanted, did you know you wanted to be a writer from an early age growing up, you know, with a writer, were you able to see and connect with that idea? I was, and it's, um, yeah, I mean, it's such a, it feels like such, so corny to say, but yeah, when I was in second grade, I, um, my teacher gave me some praise for a story I had written about, um, sea creatures. And, um, and at that moment I kind of felt like, Oh, maybe I can do this. You know, maybe this is something I can do. And, and, and the praise, you know, for better or for worse was important to me, um, then and, and, and kind of pushing me into, um, into really kind of making it part of, of my identity. Um, so I, it, it is kind of what I always wanted to do. And then in college though, I didn't, I think I took one creative writing class and, um, most I majored in English and I, thought I would do a PhD in English and become an English professor. And, um, I did not end up doing a PhD. I started, um, playing the drums. And so I was in this band when I graduated from college and I just went off to play music for a little bit. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, I I really didn't get my writing workshop experience, um, until grad school. Yeah. Where did you go to grad school? Uh, at UMass Amherst. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you, was that a, was that a, um, should I, or shouldn't I decision for you going for an MFA? The reason I did the MFA or I applied to MFA programs is I didn't, I, I was feeling really, um, confused as to how to put writing at the center of my life. Mm. I was, um, I was living in the Twin Cities in Minnesota and working, um, I'd been working at a, there's this coffee chain called Caribou Coffee. I don't, you're in Detroit, right? I am in Detroit. Yeah, I know Caribou. Okay. So I was working at Caribou and at this um, sort of neighbor, neighborhood newspaper and um, I wanted to be writing, but I didn't know any writers and most of the people I was friends with didn't even read books. And I was thinking like, how do I figure this out? Like, how do I um, kind of get that structure or scaffolding in my life? And so to me, it felt like a practical, uh, thing to do, not practical in terms of getting a degree or, or credentials, because I didn't necessarily, you know, I didn't know anything about the MFA degree, like that it was a terminal degree and you could then, you know, teach with it. It was more, um, I just wasn't writing enough and Mm -hmm. I, I, I had to figure out a way to get some deadlines or accountability. Um, and I'm, I'm really grateful that I did. I, I'm, I had a really good experience at UMass Samhurst, um, especially I, I, I read a lot of poetry there and, um, Dara Weir and Jim Tate and Peter Gizzi were there and they were all great teachers of poetry, um, of reading poetry, uh, to me. And, and also my mentor, Noi Holland, um, was, and, and is still teaching there. And she was incredibly, 
she was a gift to me. Um, in, in not just because she herself is such a great writer and, um, and the way she thinks about writing is really kind of rigorous and, and strange. And, um, but she has a commitment really to, to figuring out how to, how to write, I'm trying to think of how to say this and, and sort of represent her fairly. Like she, her attitude and the way she taught was anti-commercial, you know, mm-hmm. it was, it, she really actively encouraged us not to worry about publishing and not to, um, spend our time crafting our brand. Right. Um, and I'm grateful to her for that. I I remember I, there was a workshop, I brought in a story and she said, and she was very dismissive of the story. And she said, well, Lainey, you know, you could probably send this into a great magazine like plowshares or, and, and maybe get it and probably get it published. And, but for her, that was not, praise because she thought I was kind of rehearsing or replicating some pretty familiar, um, shapes, uh, Mm -hmm. of, of of short stories. And, you know, when the early aughts, when that was probably in 2003, when she said that to me and, and it stung a little at the time. Um, but why it was so useful is I had to sort of step back and look at the story again, not from the lens of, Oh, this, this would be published successfully, but why would this be published successfully? And and why is that maybe a problem? Mm -hmm. Uh, So it was, you know, I, I was really lucky to, to work with her. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a really strong and necessary lesson. And I wouldn't say I've learned it completely, but I think I've been in the process of learning it in a way that I at least feel like I've been more awakened to the idea that just you really can't you like you really do just have to do it for yourself because there when you when you think about the whole process in just any kind of practical way like there's no there is literally no other reason to do it you know it's like well I'm not going to make that much money um maybe I get published maybe it gets attention if it does get attention it's only going to be for a little bit or or likelier than not it won't get any attention you know you just it just has to be more meaningful than that yeah, because there's a lot of, of more efficient ways to get the attention or money or, uh, yeah, any anything beyond that kind of fleeting sense of like, oh, someone has read this or or sort of understood this. Um, yeah, and, and what are what are the ways that that manifests for you? Well, so for me, it was a big uh, it was a big part of shifting my focus from journalism, um, which is what I got my undergraduate and graduate degrees in. Um, and then I started, I started working on this novel that does, you know, it, it is about in part Appalachia and migration and class status and power dynamics and, and like all these, all these issues that I was interested in, in my journalism. But, um, the way that it happened being so much more organic and kind of really deriving from just this sense of like deep creative dissatisfaction that I had and just feeling like, I didn't care about anything. And, you know, I, I saw that what I was working on before, you know, there's not, it's not that there's nothing I did that I am not proud of, but it was very much a collection of bylines. And I was just thinking, okay, how can I get into this publication and then this publication? And then of course, you know, you do, and it's never that satisfying because that's not the point, you know? So you're, you're kind of setting up these, these false goals. And, 
And so I just kind of was burnt out on all of that. And I just found myself not really giving a shit about anything, which I'm very type A and overachieving. And that was a very disturbing feeling for me. And, uh, and then, you know, when I, when I got into the novel and kind of realized what I was doing and I think like gave myself permission to think that I could maybe do it, which is also still very much a, a process in progress. Um, that was when I started to see like, no, this is like the deeper value comes from writing what you want to write. And I think for a long time, I just didn't know what I wanted to write, which I, you know, that happens too. But I think I was, I was instead, you know, filling that space with, um, oh, but I could write for the New York times. What? I don't know. I'll figure it out. Something. Right. Right. The form of, you know, being published comes before the the actual investment in what you're going to publish. Yeah. And, you know, and I was, I remember, I think this was a conversation that you had with Carmen Maria Machado, um, on your podcast where you talked about as when you were a journalist, not really being that interested in doing the reporting, mm. but you were more interested in the writing. Am I remembering that? Yeah, right? no, that's, that's correct. Yeah. And I really, I liked research and I like, and I still like research and I like talking to people. I like conversations like this, but I don't like calling people up and asking them a bunch of questions. Right. And, and I think that that, I mean, that sort of speaks to that internal private space, um, where, as you said, you know, you have to, it has to matter on its own and, and kind of away from everyone else. It can't just be about, okay, if I, you know, make this number of phone calls and talk to these people, and then I'll have all my little ducks in a row and, um, and produce this kind of very legible um, thing for other people to read. It's, uh, we have to have some to be illegible for a while, right? Even maybe to ourselves. And I, I think, what really helps me um, is reading texts, often not, you know, contemporary, you know, maybe things that are older or, or that are in translation that do have, they're, they're so tilted or skewed or, or kind of um, at, a, at an odd angle. And I can get into the world of that book and say, okay, like this is really the a world that was made and shaped by this writer. And this writer was not trying to explain something in a way that I would already understand. Like this writer is inviting me into the strangeness of her space to, to kind of learn it, you know, to be immersed in it. And, um, and that is, I I think that kind of work does come from being willing just to, to, to kind of be alone with yourself and and your sentences. Um, and just get weird. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What are some books that have made you feel that way? Um, I think I'm trying to think most what I've read most recently. Um, there's a a book called um, Counter Narratives by John Keane, who is this this brilliant um, American writer, of both nonfiction and fiction. Um, but this book is a, a collection of I would just say of of proses that are thinking about and thinking through and, and recasting. Um, narratives of American, uh, colonialism and, uh, the, you know, the slave trade, the African diaspora, Mm -hmm. um, kind of Latin American participation in, in those, uh, in those vectors. And, um, some of his characters are, you know, in, in the 18th century in, in Brazil or, uh, you know, in kind of antebellum United States, um, and the way he uses he uses uh, documents from the time, it might be um, an advertisement or a letter or um, just the the sort of s- syntax um, 
that is is strange to our 21st century ears um, is amazing. I mean, it's it's a it's a dense and strange and um, kind of tr- transporting book. Mm. Um, and I, I originally read it because I, I taught it in a in a class that seminar I sometimes teach at Portland State on defamiliarization. And um, you know, I had, I'd sort of heard about the book that, you know, New Directions put it out and, but I wasn't prepared for the way in which it would really just kind of make its own, not just world, but series of worlds. Mm. Um, and so, so that's, that's one example. Um, but I mean, there, there's some, I, I think when I first read, um, say, uh, Virginia Woolf's The Waves, uh, that was an example of just thinking like, what the fuck is going on? Like there, are there scenes or there characters or like how, like it, I really had to, the first time I read it, um, just kind of give myself up to a logic that I didn't understand yet. And it was thrilling. Like when, when I was able to kind of unclench and, and stop, you know, asking for a scene because there wasn't going to be a scene in the, in the sense that I was prepared to expect a scene. You just have these six voices of characters speaking, about each other, away from each other, to each other. Um, and it was, you know, I had to change as a reader to, to really get into that book. And, um, which is, which is something else that is exciting about teaching. I think when I can have a conversation with students about, um, it's not about coming to a book and saying like, how are you going to please me or confirm things I already believe, but how are you going to change me? Um, or move me. Like when we talk a lot about, um, emotion being, you know, if something moves us when we read it, that's an emotional thing, but it can also be about changing our perspective. Like I'm, I'm now standing in a different place to look at this question or feeling than I, than I was before I read the book. Um, I've kind of been moved and like to, to look at it differently. When, if ever in the writing process, are you front of mind aware of thinking about your audience and like, oh, will a reader, will I lose a reader here or will they get turned off by this? Mm. Um, I think that that question is often visiting me and I have to, the, I think it's, for me, it's, it's, it's more an issue of how fiercely I push the question away at different parts of the (laughs) process, you know, because it's still going to be there. And I, am a slow writer, you know, I don't draft. Um, sometimes I even have to put like a, I put like a towel or like a washcloth or something over my computer screen. So I'm not obsessively rereading the sentence that I just wrote, you know, Mm. Um, I'm sure I could just turn down the image or something, but I, there's no, I like that better. (laughs) (laughs) I like the physical barrier, right. You know, um, so when I'm first writing something, I really try to, to shove that question away. And then it comes, I guess with red clocks, for instance, you know, when I was working with Lee Boudreaux and also with my agent, Meredith Kapil-Simonoff, um, who is an incredibly smart sort of editorial reader as well. And she had given me some notes on the book before we, we sent it out. Um, that is, that's when that, that question, you know, Lee would, would send me a note and say, you know, I'm not sure how to read this or, or do you think that the, you know, what, what do you want me to get from, from this moment? And those kinds of questions would um, 
point me back to the sentence. Is it confusing or is it um, kind of profitably skewing or, or kind of uh, unnerving, right? Um, right. Because I, I think there is a difference between just being confusing or um, kind of so difficult to latch onto that the the reader is just going to give up. And by that, I don't, I mean, I think high levels of difficulty in work um, in fiction can be really crucial and important and, and good. It's more about maybe the, the writer's relationship mm-hmm. to it. You know, if I'm, especially in this book, like I didn't, I wasn't like setting out to, to kind of paint a lot of strangeness over, over something. It was more like if there could be something might be spoken plainly or, or the image could be plain, but how is that image or, or phrase or language kind of working in conjunction with the rest of the book or, or with um, that character's mentality or, or with the, the sort of rhythms of the book. I mean, that's why, I mean, sometimes, you know, writers talk about, are you more of a novelist or more of a short story writer? And um, I think why I get more excited about the idea, at least of working on a novel is because of the ways you can work with um, those longer rhythms or um, sort of patterns of recursion and, uh, than you can in a short story right? Um, and sort of putting things together like a, a longer piece of music and, and seeing how a motif is, is sort of changing or accumulating meaning over the course of two or three or 400 pages rather than 20. That reminds me, I, I noted this when I was uh, reading up for our conversation. I think this was in Publishers Weekly and you were talking about uh, your editor giving you a note that she thought that you were walking away from a scene uh, before it had a chance to get dangerous. Mm-hmm. And I loved that. And it, it again, fit um, with the conversation I had this morning with Karan, where we were talking about how he thinks that, you know, a lot of times he kind of is circling his main themes. And maybe for years yeah. in a draft, it's like you're writing around the thing that you can't yet bring yourself to face on directly. And and it sounded like those two ideas maybe were related and wanted to, yes. to hear you talk more about that idea of confronting the dangerous things. Yeah. And I mean, and that's why, again, the, it was an overwhelmingly good editorial experience I had with Lee because she kept sort of drawing my attention back to that. It wasn't about like, oh, how can this be more palatable or or relatable or, you know, you know, it, it wasn't so much about um, making the book all neat and tidy. It was right. actually maybe about making more of a mess or, or, or going into um, a more, uh, a place that was more difficult for me to, to write with a character. And, and that is, you know, that's one of the main reasons I think writers need, um, discerning early readers because that we miss those things, you know, it might be like, Oh, okay. I'm not sure I'm up for this. So I'm going to just end the scene before I would have to deal with the thing I'm not up for. Um, and, and I might make that decision unconsciously. And then to have a smart reader say, wait, Lainey, like <laughs> you're, why did you end the scene here? You're, is it just cause you didn't feel like writing what would, what come next? And sometimes it is because I was scared to write it or mm-hmm. didn't know if I could. Um, so yeah, I, I, I like <laughs> his idea of kind of circling around something possibly for years. Um, I think I do a lot of that in my work and, I'm trying to bring more mindfulness, um, to that 
because no matter what I do with it, I just, I, I want to be aware of when I'm avoiding, um, mm-hmm. or, or kind of dodging away. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, for me, at least when I'm going through, you know, when I'm rereading, if I'm like, you know, quiet enough and paying enough attention, even if I can't diagnose it, like, you know, the feeling when you come across something and it's off. Yes. Yeah. And, and when there is that, yeah, it's like a little tingle or something of like, Oh, wait a second. Why? Like, did this get wrapped up or, um, you know, am I kind of relying on white space or or the line break, Mm -hmm. um, in a, as a kind of crutch. Yeah. And it's so funny too, to think that just like, I don't know. Sometimes when I think about the mental process of writing too much, I'm just kind of blown away by it in a really naive childlike kind of way. But you know, (laughs) you put together all of these ideas and then you're like, wait, but that isn't even what I meant. Like, it's just, it's, yeah. it's funny to me how you can sort of trick yourself or like lead yourself down these wrong paths. And you're like, I thought I was really in touch with my like mental faculties here, but I guess yeah. I'm not. Well, cause also we, you know, we bring all sorts of, um, kind of, uh, you know, habits to the page. Like even if, even if we've been writing for, a long time. It's like, oh yeah, this is kind of how I tend to do this thing. And this is the easier way of, you know, whether it's how we start a scene or how we write dialogue or how, um, you know, sometimes I, I think a lot about, you know, phrases that, um, I'm just sort of using because they're the, the easy one, but then it's, it's the very phrase that ends up being the most flattening or, or deadening mm. simply because of how easy it was easily. It sprang to my mind. I'm thinking of, uh, right now, I don't know why I'm thinking about this, but when a character's in a bar or, you know, at a party, you know, nurse, he, he nursed his whiskey or right. he was nursing his drink. And, and that, um, metaphor has, has kind of been used so often that it sort of become, it doesn't do anything anymore. Right. It's just know? like placeholder language almost. Yeah. But, but I, as a writer might think, oh, instead of just saying he sipped his drink, I'm going to say he nursed his drink because that's a little more snazzy, but, but it's actually doing very little. Yeah. Do you find that it's hard to go back and and kill your darlings? Are you uh, pretty relentless about what you, what you cut? I have a a fairly robust (laughs) folder full of like outtakes files. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So maybe I'm, I don't think I'm relentless because I do save everything, you know, even if I read something and I think, Oh fuck, that's so precious. Or that's, um, that sounds cool, but it's not actually the thing that is needed here. You know, um, I'll just take it out and put it in an outtakes file and then cannibalize that later. Um, uh, but I, I think though editing, I mean, I, yeah, I just, from the, the sheer fact of, of doing it more, I think I'm a better editor, um, of my work, uh, say in the, in this novel than I was when I wrote the listeners, um, which came out in 2012. Um, I think that one, I think I might've left things in there that I wouldn't leave in now. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, but I mean, have you ever had the experience of doing say like a public reading and you're look, you're, you're looking down at a paragraph that may or may not have already been published and you're just editing it? Oh as God. You- yeah. And I think, is it Zadie Smith who has that line about like, uh, 
it's something about being backstage preparing for reading and it's very pithy and I'm going to ruin it, but it's something about how like no sentences have ever been better edited than the ones being edited by the authors like two minutes before they go yeah, on stage. That sounds like something she would say. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. It's, it's, it's that split second, like this is a baggy redundant right. piece of shit. And yeah. like, I am not gonna, I'm just going to skip this. <laughs> um, and then wondering like, why didn't I see that? But, but again, like that's, it's what's so cool. I think about um, choosing or feeling chosen by, by, uh, by writing as our art form, rather than I'm thinking of things that require, you know, sort of physical strength and just like, like ballet mm-hmm. or to a lesser degree, you know, music or, or, or things that um, maybe over time we're less able to do, but with writing, it's like, we actually, I guess if we're lucky enough to keep doing it, we, we do see those things happening a little bit faster, at least, you know, Mm -hmm. like notice like, Oh, here I go again. Like saying the thing three times that I actually just want to say once in a sentence or, you know, whatever, whatever our little ticks are. Right. Um, What is, Oh, sorry, go ahead. I just, I'm curious, like if you had to say, okay, this is a writing tick I've identified that, you know, five years ago or two years ago when you started the book, you wouldn't have identified? I mean, do you have things like that that you can notice more easily now? I think so. I think they're pretty um, stylistic. They're pretty much on the stylistic level um, for me right now. Like, I I really use too many M dashes, and a lot of my revising is going through. And, and like, of course, like, nine times out of ten, it should just be a comma. Like, it's not a right. big deal. Um, so that's one about intervals like okay there have to be like four sentences between m dash usages oh no i don't um no that's interesting i'll have to think about that you know i'm still more or less in the first draft of this novel project so i don't know that this is gonna bear itself out but i feel like there are definitely things you know like we were just talking about like avoiding something before it gets too dangerous where i feel like I find the like, not glib, but the like kind of splashy line that I like to end something on. And then I'm like, probably leaving some stuff hanging. And, and I'm, I'm guessing that in subsequent drafts, I'm going to have to expand a lot of that stuff because I've just kind of sketched and ran away. Totally. I am very familiar with that exact thing. Um, <laughs> kind of, yeah, the, the, the rye sort of, um, you know, like, yeah, I, I can just picture that kind of sentence on pages of mine where I know, like, nope, this is not going to be able to hold up, but, like, I don't know of any other way to do it. I think I mentioned it a couple of minutes ago, the saying a thing maybe three times, mm. um, where, I mean, I think that if to blast that out and maybe use, you know, a string of, like, nine or ten positive phrases to describe something would be really cool, but if it's more a matter of kind of describing something and then immediately describing it again, just because you're so into the moment or you don't think the, the reader is going to get it. That is a, that's where the editing needs to happen, you know, right, right. Um, and, or where it can feel kind of self-indulgent. Um, but if I think of someone like, you know, Bartleme or Faulkner or something, you know, like, a, a, a you know, a page long sentence that's using all sorts of kind of modif- modifiers or restatements or kind of re- reworkings like that can be an ecstatic kind of thing. But when it's, I think sometimes I do it, it's, it's a little duller, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's just, lady, just, just say it and move on. It's just kind know? of groping for yeah. the, yeah. For the further description. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, um, 
a while back on the show, I talked to Garth Greenwell, who wrote What Belongs to You, and he yep. uh, talks about this as well. And he's got this really nice way of describing it as um, kind of setting up three uh, positive phrases as a way of like triangulating around a, a meaning or a whatever, you know. <laughs> whatever effect he's going for. But he talks about, you know, how he really likes, I think the phrase he he used is Baroque, Baroque syntax. Like, so, you know, like he's very aware of like, okay, this is a stylistic thing that I enjoy. I'm doing it on purpose. I think that's really what it comes down to, right? Like, are you aware that you're doing it? Right, right. Well, and, and also, you know, yeah. And do you want to just sort of stand by that choice, no right. matter if the choice, you know, you read it a year later and you're like, oh no. I mean, when I think when I was, yeah, when I was in college and, and maybe a little bit in grad school and I was reading a lot of, of William Faulkner and, you know, he uses all these kind of prefixes and suffixes mm -hmm. kind of in these delirious ways, like the the non-misrememberingness of, of it, you know, just right. kind of creating these like, you know, little word monsters with the, the prefixes and and I was doing that a lot and <laughs> things I was writing and a couple of friends of mine were like, uh... I really don't think this is working. I'm like, what? No, it's cool. You know, and and I'm glad that I went through that. And I, I think, you know, I don't do that that much anymore. But it, it is that being able to, and and that's you know why we have to like read all sorts of different stuff is is to say like what if what would happen if I tried to do that or you know someone listening to this right now is is like going to Greenwell's work and and looking at it and wondering like oh what what would happen if I had all this triangulation of a positive phrases and and you know the result would be different right. um, for that writer but but I love that you know just sort of being willing to like stand with the mess that you're making yeah yeah totally and I mean I think you know in your defense it is really I don't know if this changes. I don't know if you feel like this is a true for you ever in your life. And then B, if it's changed as you've progressed in your writing career, but there are times um, where I do feel like my writing style is like, especially porous. And like, if I'm reading a lot, I feel like it's just like a straight, like, I'm just like, a like sieve from A to B, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I, you know, I have writer friends who say, you know, if they're working on a particular, like a novel or a story collection, they won't read any fiction or they'll, they'll kind of very carefully curate the the kinds of things they're reading so that there isn't too much of that. Or maybe you want that, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess it, it depends on the project, right? Do you have a kind of standard writing process or do you have like a sort of ideal um, routine? Um, my ideal routine, which is not what I currently have in my life right now but my my ideal routine would be to kind of get up and start writing before you know having a conversation or having to like you know have a meaningful communication with, with any other living thing you know mm -hmm. just to, to kind of go from the darkness of sleep into into you know the, the page when I, I haven't kind of entirely turned on the the editing and um, judging functions of, of my mind yet. Um, but you know, so yeah, I prefer to work in the morning, but when I was working on red clocks, a lot of it was written at night, actually, especially during the revision process. You know, I have, um, a little kid and, um, I would wait until he had gone to bed, um, to, to spend maybe two or three hours, uh, writing or revising. And again, it's not, 
it, it wasn't ideal and it's not ideal for me to write at night, but you know, I, I'm remembering right now, um, uh, I went to this kind of one day workshop session a, a long time ago with this, um, this great writer, Kate Bernheimer, um, uh, who she does a lot of work, not only in writing fairy tales, but in, in kind of writing about fairy tales. Mm. And, and she, in this session asked us to just make a list of everything we needed in order to start a writing session, you know, whether that was, you know, the cup of coffee, that a certain temperature in a certain place on the desk near our computer, something like that, or, you know, I'm not depressed today, or mm-hmm. I am not worried about my healthcare situation or, you know, the, and it was really cool, not just to, to make the list, but to hear other people's sort of conditions that they had. Um, and then she said, okay, I want you to go through and cross out half of them. Mm-hmm. And, and she said, you know, one of your part of the work of being a writer is, is as you, you know, year in, year out, crossing out more and more of these conditions, because the more you have, the, the harder it's going to be to get to your work. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just a kind of, it was a cool, very kind of very concrete extra way of, way of entering that conversation. Um, but yeah. And, and I remember on my list, I had something like, you know, a certain, there was something about energy, like, oh, I have to feel basically like I have to feel like writing, which is, right. <laughs> is that really going to be your condition? But, um, the, the more I move away from that sort of romantic with a capital R early 19th century, you know, British poet romantic notion of like, well, if, if the lightning strikes me or if the, the sort of glorious swell of creativity comes into me, I will write, you know, uh, moving more away from that model and just saying, okay, I have half an hour. Maybe my brain is like, just, you know, the consistency of lettuce and like, I can barely string two words together, but I'm going to, you know, edit this paragraph or, or something. Um, I mean, it's so like, again, this is not, I'm not bringing the news to you or to anyone else, but, but just that, that idea of like the, the fewer requirements or conditions we have, um, you know, the better it'll be for our work. Yeah. Right. So are you, are you working at home usually? Uh, usually I am. I mean, sometimes I'll go do some writing work at my office at school at Portland state. Um, but just because that, you know, that's a door I can close and like no one will come in and there, there really won't be other, other claims on my time there necessarily, but, uh, that's not always possible. So the work is definitely in me to, to, to be more flexible about it, which I think I am now. I mean, I, there was a, 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 a few years in, um, I don't know, between like 2004 and 2008, when I was fortunate enough to go to a bunch of artist residencies. And I remember thinking like, this is the only way, like I have, like, (laughs) this is what I need. Like I need like a cabin and like someone like bringing my lunch, you know, like just this, Mm -hmm. this incredible, like luxury of, you know, a place like McDowell or Yaddo or, you know, but at the same time, like that was more like the idea of it, because if I actually looked at that, like, I'm not a a person who can write for 10 hours a day. Like Mm -hmm. it's like, that is not how my, my brain works. Um, so yeah, maybe I needed like seven of the hours to just like stare at a wall or like read poems or I don't know, like chew on my fingernails or something. Um, but that is, I think, that that luxury of um, having that that space around the time of of actually typing or 
or writing. Do you know what I mean? That, that I kind do. Of- yeah. And I think that maybe residencies like formalize that time. Whereas at home, you yeah. just feel like a shithead sitting on your couch. Right. Right. Or like, shouldn't I be doing this like household chore? Right. It's right in front of me or. Yeah. No. Do, I mean, do you have like rituals that help you kind of. So yeah. actually, yeah, this has been one of the really amazing things about doing the show is that I hear different pieces of writer's practices and they yeah. turn little lights on for me and then I can adopt them. And so one of them mm-hmm. that I did uh, that really connected with like where I was in my work at the time that I talked to Gar- Garth Greenwell was his description of uh, writing. He write, he wrote the first or maybe all the drafts, I'm not sure, um, by hand. And he talked about getting up early in the morning, you know, before his teaching job and writing uh, in his notebook and, you know, what a private kind of solitary time that was that he looked forward to. And and I really liked the idea of that. And, and I found that, um, you know, I can be a really harsh self-editor. And I think that was a large part of my creative dissatisfaction, you know, around the time that the novel project began. So handwriting, for whatever reason, keeps me moving and doesn't, it's, you know, it's so much easier to edit on the computer because everything happens so much faster. Right. Um, so the, yeah, that's become a kind of little first, first place that I really like in the morning. I would be really interested to hear a little bit more about, um, you know, this is your third book, you've got a novel and a short story collection. And, and you know, now that you um, have gone through that process three times, do you feel like there were valuable lessons in there that you could bring along? Or did you feel like you had to start over with each new project? I definitely think that each one helped the one that followed it. Um, it's in the kind of basic um, sense of confidence um, for me. And by that, I don't mean like, uh, oh, like anything I put on the page will turn to gold. It, it, it's more the confidence maybe in the process or or that a thing can be finished and find readers, right? Um, or uh, confidence that... Um, even, you know, work that I have uncertainty about can be, uh, someone, an editor can connect with it and, and sort of bring it out into the world. So that was really useful for me because I, around the time that, um, open city decided to publish farewell navigator, my story collection, I had been shopping around, um, uh, with my previous agent, a, a novel, a draft or a novel that I'd written uh, during grad school and uh, a novel, which, exists and will forevermore only exist in the UMass Amherst library stacks um, because it was not, I mean, it, it really was not ready to be published and I'm, I'm glad that it wasn't, but at the, at the time that was my product and that was the thing that I thought I needed to sell. And um, having that experience and the fact that it didn't get taken and it was rejected by editors and it, 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 it wasn't something that I, I just sort of doggedly kept working at it is important to me. And I, I've carried that through as a reminder that, you know, not everything I write needs to be published. Um, not everything uh, anyone writes deserves or needs to be published. It's more about that, 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 you know, that particular novel, which, I mean, there's so much about it that embarrasses me, but one of the really embarrassing things is it had like, I, it's, I, it's title was taken from like a song by the clash, but it sounded more like, a song by Courtney Love's band Hole. It was, it was called Lose This Skin. And, um, you know, I, sometimes I think about Lose This Skin and like 
that has, has helped me a lot and, and not clinging to certain projects, you know, because there's been other, there've been other things I've started and, and not kept going with, whether it's a short story or a, or a novel project. Um, I think sometimes we, or I'll speak for myself. I can be sus, you know, get into this, succumb to like a scarcity model thinking mm-hmm. like I'm only going to have one book I can write and it better be good and yeah. better be perfect. Or there's only going to be one chance for this editor to read my work. So, and, and I think when we get into that thinking, it's, it's really scary. Um, and it doesn't help the work, but rather instead it's, it's also about looking at other writers careers and, uh, trajectories. And, um, you know, if I think about Virginia Woolf, who's, um, probably my favorite writer, um, her first two books were, were not stunning books. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were, and they were, written before she had sort of found her form or, or kind of, she, you know, she talks about it in her writer's diary. Like she was using to get back to the beginning of our conversation, more of kind of received scripts or, or kind of received notions of how, what a novel should do. Mm-hmm. And they're not bad novels, but they're not like her, her greatest accomplishments. And just to, to look at that, you know, the same person who wrote to the lighthouse, um, you know, also wrote the voyage out, which is just sort of less luminous. This spring, my husband and I were in New Mexico, and we were at the George O'Keefe Gallery in Santa Fe, and it was really inspiring for me to see how her style changed formally and how there was still, even for somebody kind of as iconic as that, this process of just learning the basics and finding your voice and seeing what your style looked like and discovering that through a lot of pieces of work that you know were pretty indistinguishable from from maybe other people's are certainly not comparable to the work that you became known for. And to just know that like that foundation needs to be set was, was a real relief. Totally. And because a lot of times, you know, we'll read or just encounter like the, the, the best thing, you know, the best story someone's written or the best novel. And like, we don't often get a chance to read everything someone's written. And yeah, it, it's so cool to to see those changes. Definitely. And I wonder too, not to belabor any point, any tie-ins back to Red Clocks, but you know, you talking about the process of that, of getting past that first novel and, and its rejection is made me think that also, you know, speaking for myself as a woman, like I feel like women do have so much pressure put on them to present perfectly. Yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, when I, so I used to live in, in New York City and Brooklyn and um, I was in this group of, um, it was like six of us, I think. Um, we were, we were all writers, um, fiction writers and one translator. And we were, we called ourselves the accountability group because we didn't look at each other's writing, but we talked about how to get our work done. Mm. And, um, every time we met every, you know, six weeks or so, we would sort of set goals and talk about the last month's goal. I mean, it, it was really like, it sounds kind of, uh, stern and, and unfun when I describe it that way, but it was so helpful to me because uh, the ongoing conversation we had around gender and writing, you know, we were all women in this group was we would talk about, you know, how many um, sort of male writers we knew who would write something and be like, that's pretty good. Let's send it out mm-hmm. and then get published. And then, you know, meanwhile, we were sitting there being like, Oh my God, like I have to rewrite this one sentence like 50,000 times. But I mean, and I'm being very reductive. Obviously there are male writers and non-binary writers who are obsessive perfectionists. And, but in terms of that more kind of like unconscious cultural messaging that, Mm -hmm. 
that we were um, maybe performing, it was that thing of like, oh no, what if someone sees me do something that's incomplete or imperfect or um, not exactly what I meant to do? And, and, and if we stay with that attitude, we publish less and we write less and we can get trapped there a little bit. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's really, it's interesting. I mean, do you just anecdotally or sort of non-scientifically, like how do you see that playing out along gender lines with, with writers that, that, you know, just, you know, what comes to mind having this conversation is, is a little bit more in the journalism space that I remember having this conversation with a male friend who we were both doing a fair bit of music writing at the time and we're writing for various publications. And, and he was talking about how he'll like, you know, like, I think he, I had sent him a pitch of mine or something and he was like, whoa, this is really good. Like my pitches are never this involved. I'm just like, Hey dude, I want to write this thing. Blur. You know, like it was like a, a bit like a text that he had fired off. And I was just like, Oh, that's nice for you. I can't do that. Yeah. You know? And like, I, and of course, now that I say that all, I'm like, I don't know. Could I do that? I don't know. I don't feel like I could. I don't feel like women can do that. I feel like we have to prove ourselves, but um, yeah. And I, I think that you know, one of the things that's such a wonderful, one thing I find so wonderful about this moment in literature, in the literary world, that sounds like such an obnoxious, snobby thing to say, but just like, um, I feel like we're finally allowed to admit that like, depressed white men have been defining literature and they can't, (laughs) they like, and we can, we can have other definitions for it now. And it just like makes me think of when I was, you know, growing up in like my kind of formative reading years and like somehow I had stumbled on to like this Saul Bellow and this Philip Roth. And I'm like, why do I connect so much with this? And as an adult, and I'm just like, oh, because you've just been like force fed this era of male literature. And like, this is what defines serious literature. And of course, you know, Claire Vay Watkins says this so beautifully in that on pandering essay. It's just like, no, this is, this does not have to be what, what we call serious writing. Right. That kind of post-war mid-century, like white male sort of great American novel. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Which is, which is why it really does make a huge difference. You know, what people are being given to read or told to read or, or, um, what is on the syllabus, like at, you know, any level of education and, and sort of the more we can do to, to highlight our, to use a more digital word, like signal boost writers who, you know, aren't canonical yet or aren't going to um, already be known to the ear, right? You say Saul Bella. Oh, I, yeah, I, I think I've heard of him. You know, it's, it's right. that thing. He's already, I don't, yeah, I mean, we could pick a lot or Jonathan Franz and like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, wasn't he on Oprah or didn't he write, you know, a book that, you know, sold millions of copies? Like, oh, yeah, that must be okay then. Right. Right. And not putting those people in like a minority literature course, but like just a plain old literature course. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like literature versus like, you know, women, like I'm actually developing a new class, um, that I'm really excited about that focuses on, um, different kinds of experimentation, uh, by, uh, women writers from, you know, different times and places. But what I'm struggling with is, is would I call the class experimental women writers? Like, mm. is that, you know, how about calling the class like, you know, shadow and lightning or something, you know, mm-hmm. so that it's not kind of 
putting everyone into this little pigeonhole that, you know, if, if you were to teach a class on like Nabokov, Faulkner and Proust, you're not going to necessarily call it, you know, European American male writers of such and such. Right. right. You, you might say like time and memory or something, mm-hmm. you know, those more universalizing themes. Yeah. I really struggle with this like pink ghetto idea because on the one hand, you know, that signal boost does need to happen. So, so sometimes you do have to say it more explicitly. And then on the other hand, I think like, oh, you're just giving that male dominated mainstream reason to keep ignoring you because you're fulfilling the, the sort of affirmative action quota yourself. Mm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't know what the answer is. Maybe it's the kind of both things at once-ness yeah. that we do. Like even just, I mean, I'm glad that we're even having this conversation about it because, or, you know, the hopefully millions of conversations like this that are going on. I mean, I think that's how we get through it to a, some kind of like third way of um, conceptualizing, um, you know, because there's, there's always going to be some degree of archive fever and like desire to label and separate and, and sort of put things into categories. And so how do we do that in a way that's not just uh, replicating um, oppression? Right. You know? Right. Um, I, I think know. maybe too, what comes up um, or something might be applicable that comes up a lot when I talk to um immigrant writers or writers who are, you know, first generation kind of hyphen Americans, um, hyphenated Americans is this idea of just needing like a multiplicity of narratives. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So it's not simply, Oh, that's the blank hyphen American narrative, or that's the like, Oh, because also people readerships, whether, or, you know, booksellers or reviewers or whatever might, you know, they, you know, mistakenly think, Oh, I know what to expect from that. Mm -hmm. And then, if they're going to that say, oh, it's a sort of immigration narrative, quote unquote, and then they read something that, you know, is more about like pinball and masturbation, they're going to think like, wait a second, this isn't what this kind of writer is supposed to be, you know, writing. Um, And, you know, and there's plenty of people who, you know, subvert those expectations all the time. But um, in terms of a more, I don't know, mainstream conversation about, or, or, you know, book reviewing or book, book slotting. Um, yeah, this, it, it can, it can get pretty reductive. Was that something that was on your mind or, or maybe how much is it on your mind now that you're promoting the, um, you know, I think every piece that I've read that, uh, previews red clocks mentions Margaret Atwood and like, it's obvious, like, of course I get it, but you know, like how were you thinking about like, okay, how do I address the sort of lineage that is going to be given to this? Right. Um, well, uh, luckily I was pretty much done with the book. I mean, I was still making some revisions, but the book had existed as a book, um, before the, um, the, the series, you know, the TV, series of Handmaid's Tale came out, which, which prompted a, you know, awesome, like resurrection of interest in that. But I mean, not that the book has ever gone away, but I think that last year it kind of, was it, or this past spring, it kind of came back into the the Mm -hmm. conversation more. And, um, and so that's a book I haven't read since high school. And I, and, and I kind of intentionally didn't return to it and, and didn't watch the series, um, when it came out. I mean, at some point I'm sure I will, but, uh, 
precisely because it did seem like, oh yes, that I mean, it's uh, the subject matter is so linked, but at the same time, I mean, Atwood's um, kind of world in, in that book is is a lot more drastic of a of a dystopia. Mm. Um, it's it, it it she really is is kind of putting her characters um, in, in, in Offred as as like a sort of narrative presence in. Uh, a world that's so recognizably different from our own, right. even even though it, I, you know, sh- it's based on like the atrocities that have happened and continue to happen today um, in our actual world. And I, I think one reason I don't I don't really I mean I, I can see why dis- Red Clocks is described as as dystopian, but because every single um, law that pertains or obtains in that book, except for one, I think, except for the the pink wall stuff with Canada, mm-hmm. um, all the sort of reproductive legislation that's in there are things that have been proposed by people like Mike Pence and Paul Ryan and, and others. And they're not um, like those things could happen tomorrow. Right. And, the, and in, in our kind of current world, which, and, and I guess you could say that about any kind of fiction, you know, unless it's completely following historical fact, it is speculative in, in some way. But um, I mean, with The Handmaid's Tale, like, you know, Atwood is a, is a writer I've read and, and, you know, admired for for so long. And I even like wrote, um, used another one of her books as part of my undergraduate thesis, um, this, this novel Surfacing that, that she, that is it kind of maybe a little less well-known than um, The Handmaid's Tale. But uh, what I love in any kind of conversation, like even if there are comparisons that you get, you know, okay, let's, let's choose another comparison. You know, I really like talking about how books talk to one another, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and that's what I do in teaching all the time. It's what I'm pretty curious about. Like how does, you know, uh, there's Dorothy Richardson who was using stream of consciousness probably before like James Joyce was, or at least, you know, at the same time, but, her sort of type of stream of consciousness is not the one that's held up as like, you know, she invented it or, you know, these modernists like created it, but you know, it's so enriching to read, um, kind of across space and time, um, and theme. Uh, so I'm, you know, I'm happy to be part of a conversation that is about Margaret Atwood too. I wanted to just wrap up with this is the the thing I ask everybody at the end of our conversation, which is uh, what creative satisfaction looks like to you right now. I think right now it looks to me like writing new sentences um, and not being as worried about sentences I've already written. You know, it is a strange juncture to be at, like to have a book be coming out and, and that's, I'm really excited about that, but it also is some. I'm also kind of having that itch to get to new work. And um, so, yeah, I'm thinking about kind of like a blank note card and putting like a new sentence on it. Um, Cause uh, there's a writer I love, Charlie D'Ambrosio, who talks about how a lot of his essays are written on note cards. And um, I want to try the note card method with the next thing I write. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at wmfapodcast.com. Have a question or an author you'd love to hear on the show? Email me at hello at wmfapodcast.com and find me on Twitter and Instagram at cfballastier. Writers need feedback. If you're enjoying the show, please take a second to write me a review on iTunes.
The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is made in Detroit by Courtney Ballastier, LLC. All rights reserved.